This is the sermon podcast for Bering Memorial United Methodist Church, a reconciling congregation located deep in the heart of Houston, Texas. For more information, please go to bearingumc.org. Welcome to week four of Bering's Lenten study of Galatians and Dr. Elaine Heath's book, God Unbound. This week, we look at Galatians chapter four and chapters four and five of Dr. Heath's book. Now, I have to tell you right up front that as a woman, I have a little bit of trouble with Paul's use of two women, Hagar and Sarah, as object lessons. As a member of that gender, and recognizing that the female gender has historically been objectified and used accordingly, that just rubs me the wrong way. It also really bugs me that he sets the allegory up so that the slave woman, Hagar, the woman who was forced to have sex with her owner's husband and then thrown out after Ishmael is born because Sarah gets jealous, that Hagar gets to represent keeping the law, and that the privileged rich woman, Sarah, gets to represent the blessing and promise of God. To me, that just smacks of colonialism and racism. However, Paul was a product of his culture, and as a privileged Roman male citizen of the time, He probably was not sensitized to how that allegory and use of women to make his point might have come across. I just had to get that off my chest. It does point to how even the authors of scripture are products of their culture and need to be reinterpreted as our understanding of the nature of God and of all humanity as born in the image of God expands and deepens. Now, if, and that's a big if, we can get past all of that, Paul does a couple of important things in this passage. First, he uses scripture allegorically. That is, he uses scripture non-literally. He thus makes it clear that a literal interpretation of scripture is not always required or even appropriate. If we can enter this part of Paul's letter as mere allegory and remove it from the stereotyping of gender, race, and social status that is inherent in the story, and that's a big if, Paul's point is this. When we take things into our own hands, use our own wisdom, and seek to impose rules and regulations on people in order to get what we want, we are operating in the realm of what Paul calls, and I quote, the flesh, end quote. Now, the flesh, for Paul, does not refer to our humanity, It does not mean that there's something fundamentally wrong with being human or in a body. Paul uses the term flesh, and once again, that's a very unfortunate and easily misunderstood choice of words. 
but he's referring to trying to obtain and maintain a right relationship with God in our own efforts without the infilling of the Holy Spirit and without total dependence upon the God in whom alone we can be fully human. Without God, we can do nothing because we are God-breathed, God-dependent creatures. So Hagar's story, which is actually the story of Abram and Sarai trying to fulfill the promise of God in their own strength, makes a mess for everyone in the story. A mess that we are still living out today. Paul equates that kind of living with the bondage of the law. The law cannot provide salvation and cannot set us free to live as God intended us to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Sarah's story, that is the story of the conception and birth of Isaac, is a story of faith alone. God's promise of life, and that more abundantly, God's promise of life in right relationship with God through faith is the path to freedom and full humanity. And that path has nothing to do with keeping the law. The other thing that's important for us to understand as we read this chapter is the culture of Paul's day. This is a very convoluted argument, again, on Paul's part, but to understand that we also have to understand the family structure that was present in the ancient Mediterranean world. In that culture, children were generally regarded as household property with rights equivalent to that of a slave. Paul is thus reflecting his own culture when he talks about heirs being under bondage until the father sets the date when the son would step into sonship. And yes, ladies, unfortunately, in that culture, it was the father, not the mother, and it was the sons who were heirs of the estate. Paul then compares that cultural reality to living under the bondage of law, of the law, until Christ, in the fullness of time, set us free from the law, and we become no longer slaves, but full members of the household of faith. His argument is again, since in Christ Jesus we were set free from bondage to the law, why would we ever want to go back to being slaves? But now in Galatia, Judaizers, who again remember are Christians who are insisting that Christians keep Jewish law, Judaizers have come along and frightened the Galatians into believing that unless they keep the law, they cannot participate in the salvation of God in Christ. The Galatians have become so convinced that they have to keep the law that they now consider Paul an enemy for preaching to them that they don't. You can understand why Paul is suffering He gave birth to this church. He started it, and he started it from the gospel of freedom, and now they have returned to bondage. His desire for Christ to be formed in them is so intense that using the allegory of Sarah as the mother of promise, who throws out Hagar, the mother of bondage, 
he tells the Galatians to, quote, cast out the slave and her son, because the son of the slave will not inherit with the son of the free woman, end quote. Now again, I'm not sure that the point Paul is making justifies the means by which he makes it. The use of this allegory is offensive to me, but hopefully you get his point. We are not children of the enslaving law. We are children of freedom in Christ. That should give you enough to dig around in chapter 4 with and have some good discussion. Let's take a minute to talk about Dr. Heath's book, God Unbound, chapters 4 and 5. She talks about how change brings great anxiety to systems. We all know this. We've experienced it, especially when change is introduced into institutional systems which are designed to preserve the status quo. We have change being introduced into the institutional system, which is the church, and there is a lot of anxiety. We need to center ourselves in God so that we can allow the change that the Spirit of God is seeking to bring about to occur and not contribute to the anxiety within the system. Instead, by centering ourselves in God, we can be a calming presence in the midst of change. Part of the change that she sees happening within the institutional church is what she calls emergent Christian communities who are moving outside of the structures of the church and restrictions of that structure and into the neighborhoods. Not so much to bring God to the neighborhood, but to discover and join where God is already at work in the neighborhood and call that forth. She also says that this movement of the Spirit outside the boundaries and restrictions of the institutional church requires experimentation that will often result in failure. But that's actually okay. We learn by failure. She calls it failing our way forward. She reminds us that change often emerges out of truth-tellers or prophets within the institutional church who are speaking truth to the declining church and the rigidness of the institution and inviting those within it to renewal, to return to what she calls the tradition behind the tradition, rather than remaining stuck in rules that preserve the institution but hinder the work of God's free movement. She points to the colonial structure that the institutional church of today inherited and needs to break free from. A structure that included within it an evangelism and missional outreach model that was formed based on empire building that perverted the gospel and did great harm. It also includes a consumer model that sought to attract customers to keep numbers up and prevent decline. That model also perverts the gospel and does great harm. Part of the change that is coming into the institutional church and part of the anxiety around that change are questions about authority, particularly with regard to who and who does not get to be ordained, why we ordain people in the first place, 
and what it means to empower the authority and witness of the laity to the members of the household of faith who aren't ordained. So that should allow you some good discussion around where anxiety is in our own congregation and in our greater church and how we address that. In chapter 5, Dr. Heath suggests that the best way to respond to an anxious system so as to allow it to move through change well is to say, stay centered in who we are in God and who God is for us using contemplative practices that are part of the ancient tradition of the church. She encourages us to repeatedly and consistently engage in practices of prayer that encourage listening to God and to one another. She recommends Lectio Divina and using the prayer of examine as two helpful contemplative practices. Such practices help us move from fear to faith by centering us in God and God's love so that we learn to listen to God, move with God, and love well. By the use of these and other similar practices from the contemplative Christian tradition, we are able to take a contemplative stance in the midst of change. She defines a contemplative stance as including the following. We show up fully to God, to ourselves, to our neighbors, and to our world. We pay attention to what is there and what is going on inside of and outside of ourselves. We cooperate with God as God invites, instructs, corrects, and encourages us in the situation at hand. And finally, we release the outcome to God. So I invite you to take a little while and discuss those things as well. Do you practice Lectio Divinia? Have you ever used the examine? If you don't know what those are, I have resources that I can provide with you. It's a way of listening to scripture. It's a way of also listening to the, how God is acting in your own life and reflecting on that, finding forgiveness, finding direction. And so I encourage you to think about how we as a congregation might enter into practices that help us take a contemplative stance in the midst of what's going to be tremendous change within the institutional United Methodist Church. And that should give you plenty to talk about for this week. <laughs>